0: Hello and welcome to Aspects of History. I'm Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor. If you're new to Aspects of History, we're a magazine and website dedicated to history and historical fiction. Head over to aspectsofhistory.com where you'll find articles, interviews, book reviews, and short stories. And they're all absolutely free. Our magazine is at the insanely cheap price of under a tenner for a year's subscription. And that's under a tenner in American as well. Anyway, onto the podcast. If you enjoy it, please give it a great rating. It'll help us carry on running them. In this week's Aspects of History podcast, we have Andrew Roberts, acclaimed historian and author of Churchill Walking with Destiny, Napoleon the Great, Napoleon and Wellington, and Masters and Commanders. He discusses the subject of his new book, George III, who reigned during tumultuous episodes in world history, including the Seven Years' War, the American War of Independence, the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, and all the while dealing with a severe mental illness. I hope you enjoy our chat and please do subscribe and give us a great rating if you do. So, Andrew Roberts, welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. Thanks very much indeed, Oliver. It's great to be on the show and many congratulations
1: with what you've done with Aspects of History, which is, uh, which is great already.
0: Oh, well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Well, today we're discussing the subject of your new book, which is out very soon, the longest reigning king in Britain's history, George III. Now, the title of the book is George III, The Life and Reign of Britain's Most Misunderstood Monarch. So, Andrew, he's much maligned, dismissed as the mad king, uh, and I, I'm sure we'll get on to that later. But what made you want to write about him and why is he misunderstood as your book sta- as the title of your book states?
1: Well, I think the three things that we know about George III—that um, his obstinacy lost us the American colonies, uh, that he had porphyria, and that, uh, as we've been taught recently by the uh, the musical um, Hamilton, uh, he was also a um, authoritarian and uh, and a sort of vicious figure—all three of those things are completely and utterly untrue. And so, uh, when one Works on the new papers that have been made available, 100,000 uh, pages of them by the Queen in the wonderful Ge- um, Georgian uh, Papers program at King's College London. One recognizes that actually this is an enlightened monarch. He is a Renaissance prince in many ways, and uh, he didn't have Porphyria. And um, although we, of course, did lose the American colonies, it wasn't his fault. So, you know, this I think set him up. Um, Perfectly for being regarded as as wildly
0: as you say, maligned and, and much misunderstood. Well, well, starting early on um, with his life, the Hanoverian monarchs famously didn't get on with their eldest son. But George's father Frederick died when he was thirteen. Uh, what was George's relationship with with Frederick and also his grandfather George II?
1: They were very good with his father. He loved his father, and his father loved him. Um, they. Uh, they had a, a true and proper and strong bond, and um, and indeed I, I argue in this book that his father's memory uh, played a very large part in the kind of young king and then later king um, that George III became. His relations with his grandfather George II were, were abominable, terrible. George II would uh, would hit him and uh, and abuse him, and uh, in fact he hated George the second so much. That he never visited Hampton Court or Kensington Palace, which is where George II lived. And when there was uh, a rumor that Hampton Court had burnt down, he said "good," um, which is a pretty strong uh, strong reaction. But one can understand why, because um, actually, when his father Frederick, Prince of Wales, died in 1751, George II was so dilatory about bothering to get round to create to actually uh, having a funeral. Westminster Abbey, that Frederick Prince of Wales's corpse was left to decompose in the room directly above the young Prince George's. So it must have been an absolutely horrific stench that came um, from this, uh, this decomposing corpse, and that was his grandfather's
0: fault. That's not very nice at all. So, <laughs> I'm glad <yeah>. you agree. <laughs> yes, extraordinary. Now, George... Was the first Hanoverian born in Britain, and I think the first to speak English as a, as a you know as a first language? Uh, how important was this to him, but also how is, how important was it to Britain itself?
1: Uh, not only um, as his first language, but also without a German accent, uh, which is important, and it was tremendously important to him because he made such a fuss of it in his first speech to Parliament. He uh, he he spoke of being um, born and bred uh, a Briton. And, um, and that really is an important aspect. There are medals that were minted to boast of the fact that, uh, that this king was British born and bred.
0: And for, for the country itself, what was their view of this Hanoverian monarch born in Britain, a Britain? What was the uh, impact on the country itself?
1: Well, um, they were, he was very popular. He started off as one of the most popular kings. He was young, he was uh, relatively good looking, he was uh, unmarried, so he had the opportunity of making an alliance. Um, he was, the very fact he was born at all meant that there wasn't going to be, well, likely to be a, another uprising in the way that there had been 15 years before his birth with the Jacobites. And so um, and so when we, by the time he comes to the throne uh, in 1760, there is a sense of Continuity and therefore peace. So, um, so people were, were, were happy. Plus, George II wasn't a particularly um, popular monarch. He had been the last British uh, monarch, as we know now, to have uh, led his troops into battle. Um, he was a brave man, but he was not a popular man. He was, uh, he was a bit of a brute, frankly.
0: Now, George comes to the throne in 1760, midway through the Seven Years' War, which ends in victory for Britain over France in America. But how much did that success, which secured the colonies and their lands, lead to the American War of Independence?
1: Oh, well, it was absolutely profound. It was, it was crucial because what it effectively did, the incredible victory uh, in 1763, meant that there were no French threats, um, strategic threats to the 13 British colonies in uh, America um, from anywhere closer than Haiti. Um, And so you um, uh, suddenly it meant that the colonists, apart from, of course, the uh, indigenous peoples, the Native Americans in the West, um, had no threats. And uh, that meant that they could uh, credibly uh, take on Britain and grasp their independence and their sovereignty. Um, They had every um, capacity to, to rule themselves as a as a nation state. They had a strong economy. They had. 2.5 Uh, 2.5 million people, of course, 600,000 of whom were enslaved um, enslaved people in the um, colonies, but nonetheless, they were a, uh, a viable economic um, um, set-up, and so by the time that Britain uh, won that war, it had effectively, in a sense, won it too successfully, because it meant that um, uh, the uh, the thirteen colonists could secede without any danger, apart from from us, obviously.
0: Now this really comes out in the book. In that, it the impression I strongly strongly get from the book is that um, it's it's almost an unstoppable force. This desire for nationhood from the Americans that really George's. Um, George's, what uh, any actions that George could take weren't really going to stop what the colonists were after. And there are a succession of um, uh, communications between the colonies and uh, the government or the the king. And and I'm really getting at things like the Proclamation of 1775, which I think was um, received after an olive branch that came from uh, the Second Congress. Um...
1: It wasn't ter- the Second Co- Continental Congress. Yes, it was. It was called the Olive Branch Petition, but it didn't really hold out an olive branch, um, really. Um, in that, it uh, it repeated the demands essentially for for sovereign independence, and um, and it was a take it or leave it thing. And of course, by that stage, it was impossible to accept that the Proclamation was the only real. Response that a constitutional monarch could take because, and I and I do go through this book again and again, pointing out how constitutional uh, George III was, and the reason was that he couldn't recognise the se- the Second Continental Congress, and if you can't recognise the Congress, then you can't accept a uh, a petition from it, and you have to make the proclamation, which was very clearly obviously true especially by April, when you have um, Americans firing on British troops at Lexington and Concord, that um, they were in a state of rebellion. And so some of the, uh, some of the people, especially Americans who um, complained bitterly at the time about that uh, proclamation, which was only, of course, sent on the agreement of the king's ministers. This wasn't something where, where George III you know, drew it up himself. He just signed it at the bottom. Nonetheless, there's not a word in it that isn't true. Of course, the Americans were in rebellion
0: by that stage. So we move on to the Declaration of Independence. Now, it's very interesting. In in your book, um, you mentioned that references to slavery were removed from the Declaration of Independence, presumably because 41 of the 56 signatories owned slaves. Uh, But George himself seemed to be disturbed by this practice of slavery uh, as a young man. Um, but during his reign, he didn't really in- interfere with it. Why was that?
1: Well, yes, the one of the most interesting things that I, um, I found in this, whilst researching this book, was this essay uh, that that George wrote in the 1750s when he was Prince of Wales, um, uh, completely uh, execrating slavery. He said that the arguments for it were um, were ludicrous and ridiculous and uh, and it was an institution worthy of execration. And um, as you say, unfortunately, during his uh, reign, he didn't do anything to abolish slavery. But this is, again, part and parcel of what I mentioned earlier. He was a constitutional monarch there wasn't a majority for the abolition of slavery itself, as opposed to the slave trade, during his reign. Indeed, there wasn't until 1820, in the late 1820s, early 1830s. So you can't expect, uh, first of all, on the one hand, you can't complain and argue that George III is a tyrant and then um, point out that he, he was stuck to, um, rigidly to, uh, to the House of Commons. There was only one occasion when he... Put in a uh, prime minister who didn't have the majority in the house of commons who himself almost immediately afterwards in the general election did so you know um there's very little he could do the other thing is of course that about a third of our government revenues came at the time from the west indies and uh, and they couldn't work out a way to make the west indies pay as an agricultural uh, economy without the institution of slavery now we know and they knew at the time, and George III knew what a what a you know morally appalling uh, and uh, and monstrous system it was. But um, but if it was that, or not having enough ships for the Royal Navy, I'm afraid what they did was to put the what they saw as national interest before the um, the moral duty of every Christian to get rid of this terrible practice. You can criticize George III for it, of course, you can, but. Um, I think that uh, we ought to remember that personally he never owned a slave, never bought a slave, never invested in the uh, companies that did that, uh, and of course he did sign the abolition of the, the, the legislation for the abolition of slave of the slave trade um, so uh, so in that um, you know morally very perverted century he wasn't uh, the worst of them by any means
0: whatsoever, and I think during the um the war, the war of Independence itself, the King signed off on the free, freeing of slaves that had been uh, released during, during the War of Independence um, to take up arms against um, the colonists, is that correct?
1: Yes, that was a, that was a military uh, thing primarily, of course, the, um, and only about 200 uh, slaves did do that in um, Lord Dunmore's um, Virginia. But um, and what they didn't do, of course, was to uh, was to arm the slaves en masse down in the south, which uh, which would have created a social revolution as well as a political one, and uh, and they um, uh, and they decided not to go down that route. So I'm not, for one moment, presenting George III as a kind of you know liberator of the slaves. Of course, he wasn't, but um, but he did have a far more liberal attitude than the um, uh, than the American colonists. And also, of course, at the time of the uh, handing over of New York, um, the British did make sure that all the runaway slaves were allowed to get to Canada, rather than fall back into the hands of their previous masters.
0: So, the War War of Independence itself has been characterised, and as you, as you mentioned earlier, as a war against tyranny. I guess in the in the uh, in the figure of George III. And then there's the famous phrase, no taxation without representation. Um, Now, I learned in my A-levels that the Seven Years' War was an expensive conflict. It required the American colonies themselves to pay for their upkeep and protection, which I think on this side of the Atlantic was viewed as pretty reasonable. So which is right? Um, Well, the,
1: (laughs) the extraordinary thing about the no taxation without representation thing is that two of the delegations to the Stamp Act Congress actually had rules, had orders from their states not to accept any offers of representation. So they were complaining they were being taxed without, represented, um, but without being represented, but um, even the offer of representation from the British um, was going to be turned down it would have been very difficult, of course, to have had American MPs sitting in the House of Commons. Uh, we did it, of course, uh, later on in the century with the Irish, but they only had to cross the, the Bristol Channel rather than the Atlantic Ocean. And so um, so I think that the no taxation without representation thing has been taken one stage too far. And anyway, in America today, if you live in the. Uh, if you live in Washington DC you don't get you get taxed but you don't get um, represented so there's an element of democracy to it but um but no the important thing as you as you mentioned was that the, all the money that was going to be raised by the stamp act was going to be spent in the uh in the in America in the colonies uh for the protection of the um colonists in the west so and it was a tiny amount of money as well. they were only raising between forty and fifty thousand um, dollars uh, sorry pounds at a time when the um colonists were um, were only uh, taxed about two percent of what the um what the british um, were anyhow and also um the between um two point five million or at least if you if you strip out the slaves the one point nine million uh, tax paying. Americans, uh, £50,000 was absolutely a tiny amount of money. It was a a matter of, of, you know, um, a a dollar or so per person uh, per year.
0: Right. Um, So I recently watched the uh, John Adams HBO series uh, in which the founding father, later the second president and ambassador to the court of St. James meets George. uh, And I think this was in 1785. Uh, it's, it's an interesting scene, but how was the King's relationship with America after its independence? I mean, in the in the Alan Bennett play and Hollywood movie, George is depicted as not even wanting to discuss the US. Well, that's
1: completely wrong. And um, the the Adams uh, show, the HBO series, um, uh, has him as being as being sort of um, a bit pretty ill tempered and, and difficult. Whereas the, whereas the exact opposite was true at that meeting in June 1785. He um, he told Adams that uh, yes, he had been the first to, uh, among the first to um, to contest the um, secession, but um, he was also uh, the first to welcome America with open arms and and uh, and want to be friendly with it. He said of uh, George Washington that he was the um, the greatest man on earth at one point, and so it's so uh, difficult, therefore, to. Um, uh, to go along with any of these uh, people like Thomas Paine, or indeed Hamilton the Musical, in which he's made out to be some, some vicious and and aggressive figure. It's true that he talked about, uh, he didn't like to harp on about the loss of the colonies. Of course he didn't. It was his greatest um, defeat. Um, he did mention it on one or two occasions when he had gone mad, but you know, that's the raving of a, of a lunatic rather than somebody who um, has got any serious... Um, points to make um, so, uh, so I, think, I think there again you know um, he, he, he treated this as a fait accompli in a very um, positive way really.
0: So moving on to the, uh, the man himself and, and the institution of the monarchy it's during George's reign that we see constitutional monarchy developing in a way that we may well recognise today. How much was that down to the king himself?
1: I think quite a great deal um, he, um, he wasn't a constitutional monarch in the way that we have them today, of course. You know, he, did, uh, he did appoint uh, governments, and, uh, or at least prime ministers. He did um, relate directly to cabinet ministers not going through the prime minister. Uh, on that one occasion, that I mentioned, he appointed William Pitt the Younger when he didn't have the support of the House of Commons. And so um, you know, he was a much more hands-on king than, uh, than Elizabeth II. However, um, that said, he had a profound respect for the constitution. I mean, understandably so, it gave him very wide powers. But he was not anything like the uh, the, the previous monarchs. He was somebody who, in the course of his career, and obviously his lunacy, did uh, help the politicians a good deal um, to take on powers that they didn't have before. But he was somebody who, who very much saw it as his job to uh, to try to get the best people in politics to form the government rather than go down the route of, of going for either the Whigs or the Tories. He was a he was a great one for sort of coalition government, national governments, uh, and taking the, the best people from each party, which um, was an unpopular thing with the politicians, but quite popular, I think, with the public. Abroad.
0: Now, he had many interests and uh, was obviously an, an inquiring mind. He was Famously very interested in farming, uh, but also exploration, art, music, astronomy and geology. Uh, But what I wanted to know is, would he make an entertaining dinner guest?
1: Oh, I think so. Yes, I'd love to have uh, dinner with uh, George III. Absolutely. There are so many areas that you could uh, talk to him. His conversations, the ones we know about, such as the famous one with with, uh, Samuel Johnson, uh, who came to his library in uh, buckingham house and um, uh, and the king allowed strangers to just come in and, and use his library scholars and and you know ordinary members of the public and It was a wonderful library, uh, eighty thousand books, which of course forms the center of the british Library today and he um, uh, had a wonderful conversation with him. He had a wonderful conversation also with Fanny Burney, who was um, a courtier of his uh, of his um, wife's Queen Charlottes. And so, yes, I think he'd make an extremely uh, entertaining dinner guest.
0: Now, he was a very faithful husband and sober. As a biographer, does it sometimes feel a little frustrating writing about such a virtuous figure when in the past you've written about less luxurious subjects uh, and ones oh, no, no, like... no, no, no. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, no, good. I, no, it's
1: a, it was a bit of a relief, frankly. Um, and there's, uh, um, it, it means you only have to concentrate on one. Wife rather than an endless supply of mistresses, he, uh, I, ha- I hasten to add that uh, Winston Churchill was also, who I wrote about previously, was also uxorious and, and faithful to his wife. But, um, but, but as far as sex is concerned, the, 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 my book teems with it, because um, of course, his, his uncles, his brothers, and his sons were all um, all but a couple of them at least, were all amazing rakes. Um, who built up huge debts, who had, one of them had, one of his sons had 10 illegitimate children. Um, you know, the, uh, there were, George was, was nonplussed sometimes about the extraordinary extent to which his um, family were able to indulge in, in debauchery. So, um, so no, they, I don't. you don't have to worry for me on that score. There's plenty of debauchery.
0: It was, during the, uh, it was during his reign that we see the Act of Union with Ireland and the creation of the Union flag in 1801. Uh, but this resulted in disagreement with Pitt the Younger over Catholic emancipation. Now, is, this, is there any evidence here that, that George could have been a little bit more pr- pragmatic when dealing with his subjects? Um, but more importantly, was the lack of Catholic emancipation in the Act of Union or, or subsequent to the Act of Union, was this laying the groundwork for a future split from the Union for Ireland?
1: Again, as a constitutional monarch, George III couldn't force through or, or really go along with Catholic emancipation when the huge majority of the House of Commons and the House of Lords were against it. Yes, Pitt the Younger, even, even Pitt the Younger, couldn't bring his, the whole of his cabinet. Uh, with him, um, or at best half of this Cabinet, uh, if it had gone to a vote in the Commons at the time that he came up with in 1801, and the Lords, um, it would have been voted down in, in large uh, by large majorities. And it wasn't. George III did not consider it um, his duty to overthrow the, the view of the House of Commons all the time. What he did think, also, was that he had uh, taken an oath at the coronation to protect the Protestant religion and to alter the constitution so much that you allow uh, Catholics the vote was a, uh, as far as he was concerned, he was a very pious and and serious Christian and uh, believing Anglican and so on, that this was going to um, be a revolutionary um, thing to do and quite against his uh, coronation oath. And when one thinks that only 20 years earlier, you had 400 people killed in in central London, in the Gordon Riots, um, over precisely this, uh, it, was a, it was a sort of terrible Protestant backlash against some fairly minor advances uh, of relief of the Catholics. Um, what um, might have happened in uh, in London, especially in wartime? Of course, it's eighteen oh one. You have a threat from France. The um, it doesn't bear thinking about. So, yes, it seems to us to be. To be appalling that uh, the Catholics in Ireland didn't have the um, didn't have the vote, but it was it was part of the 1688 um, 89 settlement that created that situation, and he that's what he owed his crown to, and he wasn't about to to rip all that up in order to uh, to essentially what he saw as sort of appeasing the the, the papists.
0: Now, moving on to his mental illness, the first bout of which seems to have occurred in 1788.
1: Well, I, we, I take issue with that. Actually. Yeah, I yeah. argue that it was a bit earlier than that, that the first bout what's called the bro- prodrome of his uh, of his mental illness took place in 1765. I think I'm the I'm one of the first historians to to only historian, should I say, to uh, to argue that.
0: And could you talk a little bit about his mental illness, starting from that first episode?
1: Yes, the first episode was a, was a very light one. But in, um, in 1788, as you mentioned, and then on to the early months of 1789, he suffered from a severe attack of what um, I am certain was manic depression, was, the, was bipolar disorder, uh, not Porphyria, which is a physical disease that uh, was, um, he was di- diagnosed with in the 1960s as the result of a very dodgy uh, sort of campaign by a uh, mother and her son who um, only gave the doctors, in, in my view at least, biased evidence to suggest it was this, uh, this physical disease porphyria because they didn't believe that there were such things as mental Illnesses. They thought everything was down to uh, down to the physical. So uh, we're able to see a uh, uh, a king who could himself watch himself slipping into this um, into this degree of, of horrific lunacy, and uh, he was treated according to the precepts of the time uh, but what we would today consider to be appalling, calling um, with, uh, with long bouts of um, in straitjackets jackets and uh, you know handcuffed to a chair virtually it was a uh, it was a it was a terrible period in which he had to show tremendous courage indeed but it was a uh, it was a mental illness and not a physical one and I, I I've gone to Sir Simon Wesley the uh, president of the of the Royal College of Medicine and so on. And, uh, and I've talked to the top uh, porphyria experts and they all agree that um, that this has been misdiagnosed for half a century. When, uh, when you see in the Alan Bennett play uh, The Madness of King George and the movie, they, they, they both attribute it to uh, porphyria, but that's simply, become, I think, a completely outdated prognosis now.
0: Now, his mental illness... the the causes of it I mean there are there are many struggles that he did have in his life such as you mentioned his son's behavior um there's obviously America and and there was his personal tragedy as well with his youngest daughter why do you think we've we've clung on to this view of the mad king when you know there are these there are these perfectly understandable reasons for his illness
1: um because I'm afraid it's because of the uh of Dr. McAlpine and her son, Dr. Hunter, who, I go into this in the appendix in, in some detail, um, which I think readers will find interesting. You know, I'm afraid quite a lot of it is to do with the colour of faeces and urine. You know, don't, don't read it over breakfast, but it's it's quite clear that they, the, the faeces and urine go a porphyric colour, i.e. purple, uh, under this. However, there were various things that he ate, uh, some medicines he took, beetroot and so on, which, um, which can do that. And, uh, and, the, uh, and the times that that did happen were the ones that doctors Hunter and McAlpine sent to the the 1960s doctors, and they, not unreasonably, assumed, therefore, it was porphyria. What they didn't do was to send the um, evidence of hundreds of times when, when the king's uh, pee and poo were um, perfectly normal colours during uh, these outbreaks. So it was a a pretty, I'm afraid to say, intellectually dishonest way to to go about it back in the late 1960s.
0: Now, uh, George worked with a number of uh, prime ministers during his long reign. Which of them served him best and which of them let down their king and country?
1: Well, he only had two two geniuses out of the, uh, I don't know, dozen or so uh, prime ministers. Um, probably more than a dozen. I ought to have them up. He um, and, th- and they were the father and son, Pitt the elder and Pitt the younger. And the trouble is, he got Pitt the elder too late. Um, by that stage, he was uh, he was suffering from it's an extraordinary thing, but essentially it was terminal gout, um, which had affected his. Uh, in those days, you couldn't take allopurinol or. Or, uh, or coxia, like I do, um, that you have to, uh, in those days, you had to just deal with it as best you could. And it is the most phenomenally painful disease. And it drove Pit the elder mad. And so he was, uh, he was no good at a key time in the, um, in the run-up to the, uh, to the American um, rebellion. And then his son, Pitt the Younger, was utterly wonderful, it was one of the greatest prime ministers. Um, I, I put him in the top three prime ministers of all time. And uh, and unfortunately, of course, as we mentioned earlier, he had to resign over Catholic emancipation, but he did at least come back um, later in 1804. And he was inspired, but then again, he died tremendously early and, uh, and tragically in 1806. So uh, he was unlucky with his prime ministers, quite a lot of them were perfectly reasonable, sort of good-natured people. Um, Lots of them were ideological whigs, like uh, Lord Rockingham, that some were absolutely useless, like Lord North, who, although he was a charming and and good-natured person and a a fine uh, manager of the House of Commons, was a uh, completely abominable war leader who kept trying to resign, quite rightly, uh, and saying that he didn't understand anything about war but uh, George III wrongly kept him in place because there was nobody else to uh, continue the war of any kind of um, stature equal to his. And, uh, and, you know, George III can be, and is, but in my book, criticised for, for letting Lord North carry on um, years after. He was, in, he was actually Prime Minister 12 years, which is pretty extraordinary. So all in all, you have this pretty bad ruck of Prime Ministers Many of them very unpopular, like the Earl of Bute, and um, and only two geniuses, of whom uh, one died early and the other was too ill to be of much use.
0: Mm, rather poorly served then. Uh, Lord North seems he's always in the top three of worst prime ministers ever.
1: Yes, he I'm jostles sure. um, Neville Chamberlain and, and I don't know, Anthony Eden um, <laughs> all the time, doesn't he? We might. Yes, exactly. Uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to bring it forward any any further. I don't think that would be necessarily fair to um, to some of the more modern prime ministers. But uh, no, those um, uh, Lord Norths are definitely up
0: there in the worst three. So last question, Andrew. Now he lived in an age of great men, and and three that spring to mind are Napoleon, Wellington, and Washington. But does George III belong in their company?
1: No, because he's not a soldier. And also because in the case of, uh, of Napoleon, he certainly was not a dictator. One of the arguments I, I constantly try to make in this book is that uh, he just doesn't fit into the definition of a tyrant in any way. He's not a, a, a genius at, uh, on the battlefield at all, like, uh, like Napoleon and Wellington were. And he wasn't the, in a sense, he was the father of his country, like Washington. That he was obviously a, uh, a conservative figure and not a revolutionary. So no, I'm not arguing at all that that he was one of the key figures of the uh, of all ages, really, with Napoleon, Wellington, and Washington. But what I am arguing is that he was wildly misunderstood, deeply underappreciated. That he was a a good and fine man. That he was a a, a man devoted to the Constitution. Somebody who took very interesting stances on lots of things who, instead of being called a brute by Thomas Paine, should be admired as the person who, who built up half of the Royal Collection, which is one of the greatest, the greatest uh, art collection in private hands in the world. He helped finance the largest telescope in the world. He sent Captain Cook off with money to Australia to, uh, to track the transit of Venus in 1769 he was a, he was a real renaissance prince and yet somebody who is is, is generally considered to be uh, one of the worst kings so i think he's ripe for
0: for a revision absolutely and that's a great way to end it a renaissance prince i'm i'm reading it at the moment i'm racing through it it's 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 compelling i'm really enjoying it readers of aspects of history will have a treat next month because we've got a piece from you dealing with his mental illness. So that's going to be very interesting. I recommend that. But Andrew, most of all, thank you very much for your time. And best of luck with George Third.
1: You are kind, Oliver. Thank you very much indeed. I've much enjoyed this uh, conversation.